Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Angela Merkel's reign as the head of Germany appears to be coming to an end. This is the news uh, this morning. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. What does this mean uh, for arguably the most powerful uh, country in the European Union going forward? Joining us now, Irene finnell Honigman. She's an adjunct professor of international affairs at Columbia University. Irene, thank you so much for being with us. What did you make of this announcement this morning from Angela <coughs> Uh, well, first of all, this was clearly a shock because uh, both the uh, international markets and certainly in Germany itself, this was not expected. But I do want to make one or two points. We have to understand that Angela Merkel has announced that she is stepping down from the CDU. In other words, she will no longer be the, in, the leader of her party, which she has been actually uh, since uh, almost uh, 13 years, 20, almost 20 years, excuse me. However, she is not stepping down from the chancellorship. This is very important. She is still in her fourth term as chancellor and will be till 2021, unless for some reason there is another real crisis and she is forced out. So at this point, which is the reason why there has not been as great a shock as they could have been, she is not stepping down as chancellor. That is the first thing. The second point I want to make that she really at this point did not have a choice as there have been severe electoral losses both in Bavaria and in Hesse in the last two weeks and her party which used to have close to 40% has now been somewhere in the 20s. So it was clear that this has become more disruptive to have her in charge or not. However, I think we never need to underestimate Angela Merkel. In many ways, we have to remember she's been underestimated since she first came into politics in the 1990s. Under Chancellor Kohl, she was called the Machen, the young lady. She then became Mutti, the protective mother figure for Germany, cautious, protective, and in a sense, always pragmatic. So the question is, is this, in fact, a very, very smart preemptive move, which instead of risking total disruption and intrafactional fights, is she now stepping aside before being forced out, but actually doing this very much on her own terms? So I think that this is still a story in progress. This is not a definitive story. Uh, the other issue is who now takes over as head of the CDU. Uh, her chosen successor would be Annegret Kramp-Kranenbauer, uh, who was the second in command of the CDU and who could ideally be able to lead toward a much stronger CDU Green coalition as the Green Party has shown very unexpected strength in the last two regional elections. So we are still right now in the wait and see. Angela Merkel led Europe through uh, the financial, basically all of the financial crises, including the sovereign debt crises, as key player. Before that, she was the one who led Europe into a full eurozone and the European Monetary Union. She has, in a sense, always had to play a tough role, often a good cop, bad cop versus other European leaders. But right now, is Europe is again at the cusp of two major crises, Brexit and potentially Italy. It's very important that Angela Merkel is down. She's not necessarily out. 
So this, I think, is essential. Right now, there's a sentiment. I was listening to the German press and media this morning. There's a sense of shock across Germany. Whether people liked her or hated her, agreed or disagreed, the terms that we're hearing is uh, dignified how she presented Germany to the world, an extraordinary, brilliant, and pragmatic politician, and very much still the sense of seeing what role does she play now. The tragedy with Angela Merkel, and it, it should have been, in a, in a way, her greatest moral victory, was the uh, refugee crisis in 2015. Uh, this was a moral decision. It was not a political decision, perhaps for the first time in her life, that she stood outside of politics, as brilliant a politician as she is. And unfortunately, the assimilation did not occur as she had hoped. It's been an unmitigated failure. There was never a plan B. Eastern and Central Europe immediately closed borders and closed their doors. And the great tragedy historically is that this actually led to the extreme right-wing former neo-Nazi party, the AFD Alternative für Deutschland, coming into the German parliament when Merkel won her fourth uh, right. uh, chancellorship. And uh, at this point, is still a major problem for them to deal with. Just, just quickly, Irene, can can you describe in your uh, experience what do you believe the disposition of the German government will be like without Angela Merkel? Well, I think the problem is, can she maintain still enough strength and leadership as chancellor versus what she's always wanted to do is to be both head of the party and chancellor. There is a precedent. Schroeder tried this when he was forced out of his party in 2004 and remains still chancellor to the end of his term in 2005. Hard to know. In my opinion, I think Merkel can probably do this. It'll be interesting to see whether the shock of Angela Merkel stepping down in a way wakes up some of these right. uh, groups within her own party and brings about, in fact, more rather than less cohesion. Uh, this right. is still very unclear at this point. As I said, the feeling I had this morning was that everyone is genuinely in shock right now and trying to figure out how to pick up the pieces. Irene Fennell Honigman, thank you very much. Adjunct Professor, International Affairs, Columbia University. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. We're broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Our topic now is Tesla. And joining us is Robert Hockett, professor of law at Cornell University, also a consultant for the New York Federal Reserve and for the International Monetary Fund. And you'd think having a professor of law comment on Tesla, not going to talk about zero to 60, but going to talk about the Federal Bureau of Investigation and potential misstatements related to production of Model 3 sedans. Bob Hockett, what can you tell us about this investigation and have you seen anything similar in the past? Well, in many ways, um, actually, thanks for having me on, you guys. Um, in many ways, this is uh, quite reminiscent of the investigation late in the summer um, about Mr. Uh, or in connection with uh, Mr. Musk's tweets, uh, right, about the uh, funding being secured for uh, a take uh, private uh, transaction. It looks as though it's the same sort of thing. Effectively, um, the worry is that there might have been a bit of an overstatement, in other words, a bit of an over-optimistic statement um, concerning how ready uh, Tesla was to meet its production targets. Uh, and the question is whether that um, that overstatement was uh, intentional uh, or reckless uh, or, you know, designed to 
uh, get the shareholders uh, and prospective shareholders to be themselves over-optimistic uh, about uh, Tesla's prospects. You know, I have to wonder, in this new era of social media and a lot of CEOs taking to Twitter, how that changes the scenario uh, from a legal perspective. In other words, you, Elon Musk is known as uh, an extraordinary human being who it can be a bit bombastic. And so does that sort of make him less credible and thus less liable for misstatements? I think you know, that's a great question, Lisa. In theory, it could, and I think even in theory, it should, in the sense that, in general, we, what we ask when we're asking whether somebody is misleading investors or attempting to mislead investors or acting in a manner that is likely uh, to mislead investors, a, a central inquiry uh, at the core of that particular inquiry is what would a reasonable investor believe or what would a reasonable investor take uh, the speaker to be meaning, right? Or how much credence uh, or how much reliance would a reasonable investor uh, sort of vest in the statements of the um, the, the, the spokesperson, right? Uh, and as you say, um, the fact that Mr. Musk is kind of known uh, as a kind of overly optimistic prognosticator sometimes, and the fact that social media is a very common menu uh, for uh, people to sort of over, uh, a common venue in, at which people make sort of overly optimistic uh, statements or predictions might make you think that the reasonable investor would take anything that they find by or, or come um, sort of hear over social media with a proverbial uh, grain of salt. Well, then why, why have this investigation in the first place? It doesn't even seem as if the SEC's investigation has curtailed Elon Musk's use of Twitter. Yeah, well, so I think a couple of things, right? It looks as though the DOJ and the SEC alike uh, are wanting to see to it that social media does not become a sort of gigantic loophole uh, in the rules uh, that ordinarily govern communications uh, that firms make to the general public or that individual insiders within the firms uh, do. So they're sort of, um, you know, they're basically trying to set the standard uh, uh, of reasonableness, you might say, uh, rather than to simply to react to a, a sort of antecedently given standard of reasonableness um, in those particular uh, fora. Um, as for why Mr. Musk has not stopped or why he kind of continues to speak optimistically, I think there are two reasons. One is I think it's just in his nature, um, and I actually don't fault him for that exactly. It, it seems to come with the sort of entrepreneurial uh, personality that leads somebody to innovate in many ways in the way that he does, uh, to be um, sort of overly optimistic sometimes or a, kind of a booster. I mean, I think he believes um, his own overly optimistic uh, claims, and, you know, God love him for it in a sense. Right? The other reason I think that he continues uh, is that, you know, the fines thus far uh, have been fairly uh, minimal. Right, as you guys know, he tweeted this weekend that um, the, it was worth uh, it. Total of uh, forty million that he made was quote unquote worth it. Yeah, it's sort of maybe uh, being viewed by him and others at the moment as sort of just one of the costs of doing business, uh, as it were. So, in other words, going back to your point about how regulators have been trying to close this loophole created by social media, are they failing? Um. Well, I mean, they're not, let's say they're not succeeding yet, <laughs> because it's, there's a sense in which this has only just begun, uh, right? And, and it, it's still kind of, I think it's a bit of a toss-up 
um, where we're ultimately going to end up when it comes to communications uh, over social media. I could imagine the law gradually developing in such a way as to recognize at least a sort of partial loophole in the sense that they say, well, social media is a little bit different um, from, say, formal communications uh, or communications, you know, in shareholder meetings uh, or, you know, in uh, road shows or or the like. Uh, And so we'll sort of make the standard a little bit more lenient there. I could still imagine that turning out to be uh, the ultimate standard. Uh, I could also, of course, imagine them saying, well, there's really nothing different about social media and the very same standards will apply. And because we're just at the beginning of the process of determining that, and again, the regulators will be the determiners ultimately, um, it, it's kind of hard to say whether they're failing yet or not, uh, because we're just so still so early in that process. Bob Hockett, thank you so much for being with us. Really fascinating. Uh, Bob Hockett is professor of law at Cornell University, coming to us from Ithaca, New York. He's also a consultant for the New York Fed and the International Monetary Fund. And Pam, you know, this is going to be an ongoing big question, especially as we have the cult of personality leading companies and leading also the advertising of those companies on social media. I mean, this is basically de facto advertising. Uh, what is sort of the loophole or what are the provisions? What can they, again, they cannot say on social media that might end up moving their shares? A really interesting question. Well, Curaleaf Holdings, this is a U.S. cannabis producer. It began trading on the Canadian Securities Exchange with a valuation of about nine, uh, rather $6 billion. It completed a reverse takeover of Canada's lead ventures. Uh, the company is based in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Joe Lusardi, the president of Curaleaf, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Joe, thank you very much for being here. Congratulations on your initial public offering. Thank you. Why did you decide to do it as a reverse takeover of lead ventures rather than a pure IPO? Uh, To be candid, that was the fastest way to the equity markets. And no U.S. company has successfully done an IPO yet in the Canadian exchanges. But our offering was IPO-like in its quality. So we did a full disclosure statement. We did a three-week international roadshow and attracted investments from over 100 institutions across the world. So we're very excited about it. What are uh, Curaleaf's biggest competitors and what exactly is Curaleaf's business? So Curaleaf is a vertical marijuana company. So we cultivate, uh, manufacture and dispense cannabis. We operate 28 dispensaries. We're the largest dispensary network under one brand in the U.S. right now. And so we are the fastest growing largest uh, U.S. company. So is this uh, for uh, recreational or medical or both? So 98% of our sales are medical. We serviced 33,000 unique patients last month. That's something I'm extremely proud of. And so we're primarily a medical business today, but many markets we're in, including Massachusetts, are liberalizing and they're converting from medical to adult use. So we can expect that we'll address that market in 2019 as well. Tell us a little bit about the process that a company has to go through in order to get a license to operate a dispensary because there are so many different state rules and regulations, and then there's also the divergence between recreational use and medical use, medicinal use. Correct. I mean, it's a really rigorous process. I think that you have to understand that each state is unique, and they all have different regulatory requirements. But our business is primarily on the East Coast, and those are some of the most regulated markets in the country. For example, in New Jersey, we had to be background checked by the uh, New Jersey Gaming Commission, as well as the state regulators. So um, we are probably the most uh, vetted background checked <laughs> individuals in the in the country, I would say at this point. We've, we're, we operate in 10 states, and so we've been through this uh, 
uh, you know, uh, 10 times already. So, Joe, can you can you talk a little bit about what it's been like from your perspective watching the up and down in pot stocks that we've sure. been experiencing and the comparisons between Bitcoin and pot stocks? How has that sort of influenced your decision and when to go public and how? And yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly the markets are volatile, no doubt. But I mean, the reality is this is our first day of trading, not our last. And my job is to create long term shareholder value. And I, I intend to do that. I don't think it's a good analogy to compare us to Bitcoin. We're a real company with earnings and revenue. And I think that as we uh, post quarterly returns, I think investors will recognize that, um, you know, we're going to generate a lot of value for shareholders. I was, I was going to ask about some of the medicinal research that sure. is going on because, you know, it's understandable that THC, which is the psychoactive uh, portion of the cannabis plant, gets a lot of attention. But there's CBD, CBC, CBG. I mean, there are a lot of acronyms here. Can you just pull out a couple of them and explain to people what kind of research is going on. Absolutely. I mean, there are over 100 compounds in the cannabis plant, some of which we don't really understand yet. There's a lot of research happening internationally, and the reality is that we need you, that research to happen in the U.S., and so we're working very hard with um, our representatives in, uh, in Washington, D.C. to get a bill passed so we can study cannabis in the U.S. Um, it's a shame that most of that research is happening um, internationally at the moment, but we have tremendous amount of anecdotal evidence that cannabis is effective we have millions of people in the United States using cannabis to, um, you know, treat some very, very serious diseases. And so there's no doubt in my mind that um, over time we'll be able to do profound research and demonstrate that all the cannabinoids in the ca cannabis plant can have medicinal qualities. How much of your future business plan hinges on the idea of marijuana being legalized for recreational use in the U.S.? Well, as I said, right now we're mostly medical, but certainly as the, the market's liberalized, we will address that market. If you think about the cannabis today in the U.S., by any estimate, it's about a $75 billion industry, and only $11 billion of that is regulated at the moment. So there's a huge amount of growth, we think, ahead of us in this industry, both in medical formats and in, in recreational. There are only eight states that have adult use programs at the moment. So, um, you know, we think there's a lot of growth to come, and, and we'll be part of that. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Joe Lusardi, Lusardi is president of Curaleaf, uh, which is based in Wakefield and is one of the largest cannabis retailers in the United States, uh, deciding uh, an interesting way to list in Canada since in the U.S. it is not broadly legalized, even on the medical side, Pim. And the state, uh, the well, the individual provinces, rather, of Canada are going to be the ones that though they're the ones that offer the, the products. Indeed. The topic now is China considering a tax cut in order to revive and help their automotive industry. Brendan Ahern is the chief investment officer for Crane Shares. They're experts when it comes to investing in China. Brendan joins us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, Brendan, let's talk or have you talk about how bad is the automotive industry in China. Why do they need this tax cut? Well, China is still the global leader in terms of uh, auto sales, that you have almost 24 million cars were sold in China last year. GM alone sold more, uh, 4 million cars in China, 3 million cars here in the U.S. But we've seen the uh, rate of sales come down a bit. So in order to help uh, push this consumption, uh, autos is a big part of that. We're seeing a potential tax cut when it comes to car, car purchases. How big are the taxes and would this tax cut apply to global companies that don't uh, that aren't based in China that are also rallying on this news? So uh, the 
foreign autos that are imported, there is there is a uh, pretty meaningful tariff uh, that's actually gone up due to this uh, trade war. Uh, but a lot of the foreign automakers, Volkswagen, GM, Ford, actually manufacture their vehicles within China and therefore avoid the tariff. So the the ones that have the local manufacturing capacity would, would actually benefit from that. And how big is the tax just in general, even for local cars? Uh, so the, China has a VAT tax, which runs around 12 percent. Uh, so it's, it's a, you know, a, any sort of tax cut is going to have a pretty meaningful impact. The automotive industry in China, as you said, has an effect on companies outside of China. Is the economy in China doing well? So China, it's a, it's a big country geographically, and likewise, the economy is very big. So parts of China's economy are definitively slowing. A lot of those traditional economic sectors, uh, at the same time, parts of China are doing very, very well. The more domestically oriented domestic consumption names are performing quite well. So as investors, we want to be very specific in where we're kind of placing our chips in order to really overweight the parts of China that are doing well, we're lessening our exposure to some of those slowing parts of China. So Howard Marks, one of the uh, co-founders of Oak Tree, the world's mm-hmm. biggest distressed debt investor, said that he was actually interested in starting to buy distressed debt and equities in China. Um, what do you make of that? Well, certainly Mr. Marks is a, you know, a very well-regarded, well-followed uh, investor, so certainly his words carry a lot of uh, gravitas. Um, and certainly I think it's very encouraging that at these depriced levels in terms of equities, Shanghai Composite, the PE is now under 11, forward-looking PE is closer to 10. Uh, you get these discount sales um, not very often as investors, so we do think it's a great entry point. You talked about specific areas of investment in China. So what are those specific areas? So we, we domestic consumption, healthcare, clean energy are three of our, uh, as well as uh, the Belt and Road related infrastructure names. Uh, domestic consumption is an area that has come down. A lot of the U.S. listed Chinese internet and e-commerce companies are off very dramatically. Uh, for instance, Tal Education, great online education. Its its stock is off over 50% from its June highs. They just reported earnings on Friday. They grew revenue 52% year over year. So I think that's where the sediment and the fundamentals have potentially diverged very greatly. I think that one challenge for investors with respect to China and something that sort of clouds my understanding of what's going on there is the government intervention Mm -hmm. and the huge leverage pile that has sort of supported and fueled this economy. You just have to wonder at what point will the government be unable to step in and support markets the way that they have continued to do so year after year to keep this growth going? So, yeah, I mean, I I would agree that uh, China's economy has won. It has been slowing. They've been fighting an anti-pollution campaign. They've been very aware of debt to GDP growth. So they're trying to deleverage debt in China. It's not the government. It's not the household. It's not the private companies. It's the big SOEs. So there's a big focus on making credit more difficult for these SOEs, make it more expensive. At the same time, they don't want to shut off state-owned enterprises. So they don't want to shut off credit to private companies. So so they have to play a little bit of a balancing act here. The market in China is, as you mentioned, huge, right? It's very difficult to figure out, you know, what is going to win, what's not going to win. What about high-end luxury goods companies that are based outside of China but derive huge business from Chinese markets. I'm thinking of LVMH, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, just just recently, um, 
I, I believe was it Gucci just came out and yes. said that they they actually had a great uh, quarter in China. In China, and and who would have thunk it, right? That that you know China, you've got this uh, China apocalypse. It, it's it's just where sometimes these uh, the perceptions don't meet with reality. And I thought Gucci's earnings and and people say, oh, how can we trust these numbers? It's this is an Italian. But I mean, company. do you do you buy into that? Do you think that those are the kinds of companies that are continued to do well? I, I I do believe anything domestically oriented. That if anything, this current trade war, which I think will get resolved, uh, shows why China needs to continue to raise domestic consumption, lessen any dependency on export-driven manufacturing, uh, just in order to insulate themselves in, in the years to come. There's a cliche that there's a rolling ball of money in China that goes from one asset class to another as mm -hmm. investors start to uh, stampede away from one area into another. The stampede has been going into bonds, and you've seen sure. yields drop in China, lowering borrowing costs, which again leads to sort of a releveraging okay. and an incentive to do that. I mean, do you think that that can last? I, I think one of China's issues is this very high savings rate where you are very much responsible for your health care your retirement, these banks have a lot of deposits. What do banks do with deposits? They lend. So, so that's part of, I think, there's been this malinvestment of where that lending's gone and they need to reorientate it away from the big state-owned enterprises, um, i.e. no default risk to the private companies that where there is default risk. So the bankers have been a part of this issue. Is there really no default risk in risk in the SOEs at this point? Now there is. You know, I think that's one aspect of, of China is very much aware that uh, the, there's potentially that first domino within their economy and within their financial system. So they're trying to identify those players that could act as a first domino, which means if you're big enough, you get saved. But if you're not big enough, guess what? You're gone. Uh, very Darwinistic, and we're seeing defaults actually pick up. We think that's actually a good thing, a healthy thing, uh, that the, mar you know, the invisible hand of the market is, is at work here. The invisible hand making itself felt. Uh, you know, honestly, China's intervention, it's still, I, my head hurts a little bit to understand where they're intervening, where they're willing to, where they want to deleverage, why they're incentivized to do so. A lot of questions. Brendan Ahern uh, really outlined a lot of really important issues. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares based in New York. And Pim, uh, a lot of people are focusing on China as sort of the linchpin in the future of global markets, certainly for emerging markets, but also uh, in particular in Europe, uh, given the important export, uh, export uh, lines of transmission. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.